from the Gospel of Matthew. Our text today will be in chapter 4, and you can leave this right here, but I'm going to pick up a little bit earlier a few verses in chapter 3 before we come to this passage. So hear the word. I'll start in verse 13 of chapter 3, and then we'll pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized... Just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. During this season of Lent, we're going to be in a series of sermons called Backcountry Encounters. Have you ever been to the backcountry? It's uninhabited wild space, and sometimes it's really fun to go there. But sometimes the backcountry, well, you can encounter some things that are a little alarming. And so the backcountry is not only a place we can go, we also experience that in our own lives. Places unexplored in our spirits and in our souls places where we might come up against some unexpected encounters. And what will we do? What will we do when we get there? 
So for this next few weeks, we're going to be exploring the backcountry. We're especially going to be following Jesus as he journeys towards the cross. And in each of the passages that we'll pick up, uh, Jesus or somebody has an unexpected encounter in a backcountry place. And so welcome to the backcountry encounters. Now, last week, I was in the backcountry of Israel. I was in the Judean desert, which you can actually see up here. This is an actual picture uh, of the Judean desert. Uh, not like the desert you'd think of. There was no roadrunner, no wily E. Coyote, very few Acme cans of anything, uh, no cacti. Cacti is the plural for cactus, for those of you who are going to take a spelling test tomorrow. It is this wide, open, hilly, dry, rocky country filled with caverns and hiding places and, quite frankly, much else. And there, in the back country of Israel, I did have some unexpected encounters. We were driving through, and our tour guide, who lives in Israel, who passes by these roads all the time, he started shouting like a kid at Hanukkah. Makes more sense in this context than a kid at Christmas, but I think you get the point. He said, look, 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 right out the window. He said, there's a pack of gazelles. This never, ever happens. And lo and behold, you could barely see them because they're camouflaged so well. Gazelles, wild in the desert of Judea. Super cool. And then not too long later, he goes, look, look, look. This never happens. Look, a coyote. And I think the gazelles were grateful that we had traveled about a mile. But there it was, a wild coyote we encountered right there in the Judean desert. But, you know, my favorite encounter was the camel. There's a camel in Jericho. How many of you have ever ridden a camel? Oh, I got a couple of camel right. Those things are tall, aren't they? They're very tall. And, and, and when you get on them, they bend down their front legs, which puts them at like this really steep angle. And then when they come up, they do it really fast. And so you get some zero G going on there. And they run. Did you know camels run? They run. And then when you get off... They plop right back down, and you go about 70 miles an hour straight down and hang on for life, or else you're going to, well, you're going to eat the dust. And I was super excited, as you can tell. That was a very safe ride I took. And I thought it was finished. Thank goodness. I got off the camel, been there, done that, when the camel decided that the, well, that the camel really loved Jim Morrow, and then this happened. It was at that moment I decided that I needed to buy my wife flowers if I was going to be welcomed back home. I won't go into detail, but I just won't. It's fantastic. That was fun. That's a fun thing. Uh, We encountered some things in the desert, but the desert not only has fun things. The desert, the backcountry, it's a wild and dangerous place. Here in the wilderness of Judea, for example, it's dry In the summer, it's really hot. It's steep. Rock slides and flash floods can come through at any times when the rain falls. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I imagine seeing a coyote up close and personal is a lot different than seeing one from the safety of your bus window. It can be a wild and dangerous place. And you know, the the landscape of these backcountry places, the landscape can mirror our souls sometimes. Have you ever felt like your soul was dry and isolated or desolate? The environment can 
mirror our souls. The desert out here and this one particularly, it strips everything away. There's not even cell service in the desert. It strips everything away, no crutches and no conveniences. And in a place like that, you have nothing to do but face yourself as you really are, warts and all. That's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Terrifying to face ourselves, to encounter ourselves. I mean, think about all the things that we do to avoid dealing with our deep self. Think about all the things that we do, the ways that we self-medicate, whether legally or illegally, to numb ourselves from dealing with what's really happening deep inside, with the mindless activity we engage in just so that the water can't settle enough in our, the pond of our life to really see the bottom. You know, I love as much as anybody Netflix and chill. Can I get an amen? I love Netflix and chill. But you know, and for those who don't know, that means sitting in front of the TV for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours doing nothing. It's fantastic. But the reality is, is we can do that to distract ourselves with mindless activity from really seeing what's going on in our lives. But if we're courageous enough to enter the back country and deal with ourselves, we can actually grow. Once we face the fear and come out victorious, we can actually grow. Anybody who's had an unexpected and dangerous encounter and come through the other end knows that that does something for your courage. Well, Jesus heads into the desert, maybe one of these very hills, as the Jordan River is just further down. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus heads into the desert to have a deadly encounter that would determine his purpose and the fate of all of humanity from that point onward. If you look in the Bible, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, He was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. That was Apparently, he's going into the desert for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. By the devil. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was told you're going to face your greatest enemy, I'd be gathering supplies. I'd go find me an Army-Navy surplus store. I'd get some field rats, and I'd get my deadliest gear that I could find, like my broomsticks and everything. I'd be, going, I'd be getting ready. I'd be carving up, getting ready to go. But instead of all of that, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting with nothing to eat and drink. He'll face this encounter armed with nothing but his bare soul and the word of God. And if anyone's ever told you that all you have to do to be perfectly happy and to have never get stuck in a situation like this, if anybody's ever told you that all you have to do is become a Christian and everything instantly gets better, uh, somebody's lied to you. Some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. If it hasn't happened yet, I promise good news is coming, but if it hasn't happened yet, desert times are coming that will tempt you to let go of God, to take things into your own hands again, and to derail God's purpose for your life. I mean, it happened to Jesus immediately after he was baptized and the voice of God spoke out for everybody to hear and then the next verse, he's gone into the desert. And so if it happens to Jesus, why would we think that we would be exempt from that? 
The question isn't if the backcountry times will happen, but what can we do when it does? What can we do when it does? So what I want to do is take a look at uh, some points in this story, and we'll begin by taking a look at the nemesis in the passage. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 says this, just at the beginning. During that time, the devil came. Well, that's ominous. It's interesting that Matthew talks about how the devil comes into Jesus' experience and into that place. Matthew actually uses three words, different words in this passage alone, that give us some insight into what he means by the devil and what the devil does and how the devil works in this passage. So you'll see in verse 1 and here in verse 3, Matthew uses the word devil. In Greek, that's diablos. Diablo? Does that, you ever heard Diablo? It all comes from that Greek Diablos. And devil is not just to refer to pointy-haired red people, but pointy-horned red people, but slanderer. That's the nature of the term, a slanderer. One who will slander God and slander you in order to do everything that he can to take you away from God slandering us, what would that look like? I get slandering God. Slandering us would be like, no matter who you are, you are not able to be forgiven, ever. You are not worth it. Jesus wouldn't have done this for you if he knew you. That's a slander. That's the work of the devil. Now, Matthew also uses another word in verse 3. He calls the devil the tempter. That one's a little more straightforward. It's one who tempts or lures away. Sometimes you wouldn't make a choice right off if it was to you in black and white, but we can be lured a little, can't we? Step by step and step by step. I'm reminded that uh, psychologists and counselors and studies, in fact, will show that most extramarital affairs don't happen in one little ones. The lure of temptation. Do you remember uh, in Genesis 1 how Adam and Eve were sitting in the garden and they saw the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat and a snake slithers up there and says, No, God didn't say you'd die. Look how good that fruit is. Little by little, seeds of doubt, seeds of temptation, the tempter. Now Matthew records Jesus himself in verse 10 using the term Satan, the Satan, Satan. And this comes out of the Old Testament, in fact. And this uh, term refers to the accuser, like a prosecutor, or the enemy. One who is opposed to God and opposed to us, and opposed to us being with God. And so you can see, even just in this little bit of looking at the words, that the devil is an active enemy force in the story. And continues to be, really, in the world. I think we can recognize that that finds us at our weakest moments to lure us away and slander God and slander God's work in our lives. Have you ever noticed that you're most tempted when you are the hungriest, the loneliness, the most loneliest, the most tired, the most spent, the most stressed, the most strung out? And if not, the devil will make sure it can happen and put the lure out in front of you. And maybe, I won't discount that maybe you'll encounter a distinct devilish force. But more likely, 
in our culture, the devil doesn't have to work too hard. It's like C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. Have you all ever read that? The, the, the Uncle screw tape sends the demons out to mess with people in little letters he writes. And he doesn't have to work too hard. He just uses all the tools that are in you and around you. The devil will grab any old tool he can to try to slander and tempt and lure us away. And in our world and our life, it's like, it's like a messy garage littered with Grandpa's old tools that you never bothered to pick, away, pick up and put away. It's just right there, right there, right there, right there to tempt us and lure us away. Temptation takes many forms, and we've all experienced it in many different ways. But at the core, if you drill down, the core of temptation is to call God into question and call your relationship, call you away from your relationship with God. That's the core of it. And Jesus, when he experiences these three temptations in the wilderness, he experiences them at a very core deep level. Each one of these temptations is presented as a distinct and direct attack on his identity in God. His identity in God. Keep that in mind. I want to show you this. Twice out of the three temptations, what does the devil say? In Matthew 4, uh, verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, then do this. If you really are who you think you are, if you really are who God says you are, then do this. And when you, when you take that and you put it right next to what happened right before this, when Jesus was baptized and he comes out of the Jordan River and the skies break apart and the Spirit comes down and God declares over him, you are my son whom I love, and you I am well pleased. Is it any coincidence that the first words out of the tempter's mouth are, if you are what God says you are? You see, it's his identity that is at stake. The devil is tempting him away from his identity in God. And so as we look at these three temptations briefly, what we're going to find is that the way that uh, Jesus was tempted are the very ways that we are still tempted. Tempted with lies about who we are. Tempted with lies about who we are. So I want to look at these temptations one at a time uh, to talk about the three lies that the devil tells about who we are. The three lies that the tempter tells about who we are. First, is that you are what you do. You are what you do. Listen to this verse. During that time, the devil came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, if you were fasting for 40 days, wouldn't you like a little bit of bread? I'd like a little bit of bread. There are rocks everywhere in the Judean desert, so he could have all the bread he wanted. But the core question is, if you are the Son of God, you should have the power to do this. And the core temptation is, if you are the Son of God, that will be defined based on what you do. Your identity in God is conditioned on what you do. And the lie that the devil presents to Jesus and the lie that the devil continues to present to all of us is that you are what you do. Why do you think that we have such a drive to accomplish so many things? 
Why do you think it is that we're willing to make unhealthy sacrifices for our bodies and sacrifice our families and sacrifice relationships and sacrifice our soul to make the time to do another thing and to do another thing? And we don't want to just do some things. There are some things we don't want to do because they're insignificant. We want to do more things. We want to do better things so that we can uh, stack that up in the resume of who we are because we are what we do. The drive to to spend a day and sit in prayer as the Bible commands with the Sabbath, nobody will do because we've got work to do because we are what we do. And when we don't do something well enough and it nags at our soul and we don't want anybody to see and we're afraid to actually step out and take a risk because somebody might see that we don't do that thing well enough and it bothers us because we are what we do and we don't want to put forward anything imperfect. I won't step up to pray or to speak to somebody because I'm not the lie. You are what you do. I am a self-proclaimed recovering perfectionist. I am in recovery, and if there were perfectionist anonymous meetings, tell me. I would love to go. You'll know that I have uh, sent you a message on Facebook. You'll know it's me before you even look by my name because every one of them will have that little line that says edited because nothing kills me more than having the wrong punctuation in an online post. I could make one little thing perfectly normal not quite perfect, and it will stick in my craw for hours. What about you? We are what we do is the lie. Second, you are what people say about you. You are what people say about you. In verse 5 and 6, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city up to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple, which I'll show you in a minute. And he says, if you are the Son of God, jump off. Because the Bible says that angels will come and keep you from falling. And let me show you the the picture of of the pinnacle of the temple, if it's up there. And so the pinnacle of the temple is right at the top of the wall. And at the pinnacle point, it's, it's, it's it's all flat on top, but it's pinnacle because down below is a big valley. So if you jump from there, you're jumping way far. And the thing about the temple is that it's never ended. Especially, you know, Jerusalem, as people are there all over, and the temple is filled with people seeking God. Can you only imagine that if somebody jumped from the pinnacle of the temple and angels carried them back up and they never got injured, what people would say? Oh, my goodness, look at this. This is God at work. This is God at work. This must be the Messiah. This must be the Son of God. This must be the one that will follow. Do this because then people will say that about you. And what's deeply ironic about Jesus is he will spend his whole ministry and no one will admit who he is. Except for Peter, who will then deny it, and the Roman guard, who after crucifying him, will say, huh, truly this was the Son of God. He will spend his whole life without a single human validation of his goodness in God. Could you imagine how much of a temptation it would be to do something to prove it. You are what people say about you. Does that ring with you? Just think about the ways in which we know ourselves deeply, but we want people to see what we want them to see so that they will say the proper things about us. The way our networking can go sideways when all we're doing is currying favor. The way that we'll 
help somebody or do something simply to get the accolade or the praise, the way that it stings so badly when somebody is mad at us because we don't want somebody to say something bad about us, the way that we'll sacrifice as much as we can as long as we can get a good word in with the right person and impress the right people. And then, heaven forbid, somebody gets angry and says something bad about us. Because if we are what people say about us, guess what we are then? Nothing. Bad. It's hard to have, it's hard to put up with when people don't like us at some point. But there's a little bit of news for you. I've learned in my short span of life that you can't make everybody happy. You just can't. Somebody's not going to like you. It doesn't even have to be about you. You might look like somebody they don't like. Ain't nothing you can do about that. You look like, I'm sorry. Go have another friend. If we are what people say about us, what will we do? And what happens when they don't have something good to say? Third, you are what you have. You are what you have. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, the Bible says, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you'll kneel down and worship me. I will give it all to you. Oh, how wonderful it would be to have it all. That's part of the dream, isn't it? To have it all, to have everything you've ever wanted. It's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory would never exist without it. To give you everything you've ever wanted. I wonder if that's why the lottery continues to take off everywhere because with just the sacrifice of one dollar, you could have it all. And if I had it all, then I'd finally have everything I need. What do you think about This resonates with me so much because I'm the kind of guy who will see something on Amazon or at Best Buy, never seen it before in my life, then all of a sudden realize that I don't just want it, but I need it, and that my life will be empty without it, and then all of a sudden I know 15 people with it, and they're so much better than me, and I will justify myself into everything to go and spend money I don't have to impress people that I don't really care about to have a thing that will make my life better. Anybody else? No, 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 I ain't talking about this, preacher. Don't you come by my house till I put everything in my garage. I ain't judging anybody. I'm not at all. And think about what we do to have the things and the kind of pull that, that things have on, on our soul and the satisfaction that we have from getting something new and from having something and from the status of that thing and how we will mortgage our future for the satisfaction of having something now by sacrificing what we don't have to get it. There's a draw of stuff, and if somebody has something I don't have, well, by golly, I've got to have what they have because I'm better than them anyway, and they just need to know it. And it's not okay to have less and the cheap one or the inexpensive one, but it's the lie that you are what you have. The devil tells Jesus, all of this I'll give to you. The thing is, is that Jesus is going to get it all anyway, but the difference is he could have it now without having to struggle, without having to suffer. Because you are what you have. These are the lies that the devil tells people. That you are what you do. That you are what people say about you. That you are what you have. I mean, I want you to think about Jesus here. Jesus, when he receives all of these things... He names them for what they are. Each and every temptation that comes along his path, he says, that is a lie. 
I know who I am. It's almost like you can listen to him saying this. I know who I am. I, know, I knew who I was before you ever spoke, devil. Because before I came to this place, before you spoke to me, my Father in heaven spoke first. And do you know what he said to me? Do you know what he said about me? Do you know what he said about who I was? He spoke for all to hear that I am his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And that is the truth and the only truth. God spoke first and there is nothing said afterwards that will ever define me. Jesus gives us a pathway out of these temptations. In the same way that he relies on the truthful word of his father who declared him to be a beloved child, his beloved son, he offers us a pathway when we face temptations. Here's a very simple way that one author, Bob Goff, put it. We'll put it up on the screen. Start with who God says you are and work forward from there. Start with who God says you are and work forward from there. I want you to think about your temptations. We all have them. They could be financial. They could be sexual. They could be power-related. Any other kind of boundary crossing? I want you to think about that. No need to be ashamed. You're not saying it out loud. Now break it down to its core lie. What is that temptation trying to say about you? And whatever it's trying to say about you is not true. It is a slander upon God who says what you are. It is a slander upon yourself who is created in the image of God who Christ died for. Because listen to me, when you became a Christian and you were baptized, you were adopted into the family of God. And a very similar thing God regards with you that Jesus heard in his baptism, where God would speak over you and Jesus Christ that you are my child whom I love. In you I am well pleased. Everything else is a lie. Begin with who God says you are and work forward from there. You are God's beloved child. Start from where God, who God says you are and work forward from there. I'm going to take an extra minute because I think there are some people in the room today who aren't Christian and who aren't hearing that word the same way. And they might be asking themselves, how does this apply to me. No one, not even God, might say that I am loved like that. I can't even please my family, my parents, my co-workers. How could God ever say he's pleased with me? Well, I'm going to tell you that that's a lie too. That's a lie too. That's the devil at work telling you that God could never love you and delight in you. But listen, the truth is, before that lie ever came across your path, you were created by God. You were lovingly knit together in your mother's womb, and he desires nothing more than for you to come on home so that you can be within the sound of his voice for him to say these words to you. You are my beloved child. Start with who God says you are and work forward from there. But maybe you're resistant. Now, we've all been resistant at some point. It's perfectly okay. You say, I don't care if God loves me. It makes no real difference to my life. Still got to go to work in the morning. I've still got my problems here. And you know what I would say to you if that's, that's you? I would say, my, my, how exhausted you must be. How tired you must be. 
chasing day after day after your identity, trying to find security in what you do and what people say about you or what you have, and finding time after time again that once you get to the top, it all falls apart and there's another rung and another rung and you can never get there. And that's the devil at work too. Slandering the truth of God and deceiving you into thinking that you're not worthy of it or that you can do it on your own. And it's time to stop. Not because I tell you to, but because you know you do. Because you know it's time to stop. Because God spoke over you before you were even born at creation when he created humanity and he said that it was very good and he was speaking with you in mind. And so I hope today is a desert moment for you if you're resistant where you come face to face with God and yourself so that you can hear God's love for you and sense it that you might come to him. You are not what you do. You are not what people say about you. You are not what you have. You are a beloved child of God. You are not worthless. You are not broken. You are not a failure. You are not a mistake. You are not trash or whatever anybody else spiritually or in this world would ever say to you. You are a beloved child of God. Start from what God says about you and work forward from there. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you